Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Greg Sargent to the podcast to talk about his new book, An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. This book was published by Custom House Books in 2018 and goes through a lot of the discussion around questions of how strong our democracy is um, and what the age of Trump suggests with regard to strengthening or the weakness of American democracy. But first, I'd like to welcome Greg Sargent to our show and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hello, Greg. Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, so I started this project in the winter of 2017 after Trump had gotten elected. Um, I was in talks with um, the publisher about a book that would essentially look at a lot of the ways in which our democracy's rules of political competition are rigged for partisan purposes. And I immediately jumped at the chance to write a book like that because you know, there, there had been a lot of that over the years, and uh, and with Trump taking over, it looked as if it could get a whole lot worse. So I figured this would be a great uh, moment to try and weigh in on this topic. What I quickly discovered, though, is that it was a lot more complicated than I originally thought, particularly because I started to dig pretty deeply into what your, your colleagues tend to do with this stuff, i.e. political scientists. And what I rapidly discovered was that there's not a lot of consensus around a lot of these very basic questions, such as how do you measure the strength of a democracy? What is the impact of particular efforts to rig the rules, such as voter suppression and gerrymandering? And what I hope resulted was a nuanced portrait of some of this stuff. I, I'm a I'm a reporter by training originally, and I came to opinion journalism kind of late and to blogging kind of late. And so what I hoped to try to do with this book, once I saw how complicated these topics were, was to try to do a reported book that was informed by political science and could popularize political science in a way that lay readers could really understand. And and that's really what I tried to do here. And I hope it worked. I think it's a really, first of all, it's a very readable book. Um, but it also does delve into these questions of, you know, what, what do we mean by the strength of the democracy? What are actual strengths and what are norms, which are not necessarily the structures themselves, but traditions that have been put into place? I first wanted to ask you a question about what you mean by Thunderdome politics? Well, Thunderdome politics, uh, which I credit to a long conversation with, with my editor. We came up with it after banging our heads against the wall for about three straight hours. Um, 
Basically, it means two things. The first is the kind of no-holds-barred fight to the death that results when all rules, norms, and standards of fair play go out the window in politics. Uh, Your listeners have probably seen the movie. You may remember it's uh, Two Men Enter, One Man Leaves. And so we thought that that kind of captured this death struggle that results when all these kinds of rules and norms are essentially disregarded. So there's that piece of it. And then the second uh, intended meaning of this was to try and kind of capture the politics as blood sport crude tenor that Trump has dragged everything down to. Um, And so the Thunderdome is meant to capture both those pieces. First, the long-running erosion of rules and norms that Republicans mainly have been doing for many years. And second, Trump's kind of souping up of the degradation of everything to even greater extremes. And so to circle back to the sort of first part of that discussion, the erosion of rules and norms, which is really, I think, the thrust of a lot of your book um, in thinking about um, the, the role of voters and access to the ballot. Can you talk a bit about um, what you saw as you were sort of delving into this research and, the, and then the writing of the book in terms of that erosion? Where did you see it and how did it look? Well, there have been a lot of discussion among political scientists and authors for the first year of the Trump presidency. I mean, there was How Democracies Die by Levitsky and Ziblatt. Uh, there were a lot of academic papers, many of which I read on, on, on this very topic that likened what was happening to our democracy in its first year of Trump to what's happening in many other countries in terms of the democratic backsliding that's been occurring. And so originally, uh, initially, I should say, I went into this in that sort of spirit, but then discovered that a lot of these topics were more nuanced than I expected, that the impact of a lot of these degradations is harder to quantify than we think, that there in some cases are, are defensible rationales for doing some of these types of things, though not all of them, um, that both parties have engaged in them to a far greater degree than is usually acknowledged, although Republicans have taken it to a much, much, much worse extreme. And I started to conclude that we'd probably get through a lot of these challenges that we're going through right now. And it was kind of easy for me to conclude that when I did, because you know, during the first year of Trump, it really was understandable for people to be in a very serious panic about <clears throat> what was happening. Nobody really know, knew how far Trump was going to push a lot of these things. The authoritarianism appeared to be a genuine threat. It still is in certain respects. Um, and so the tenor of a lot of the political science and uh, you know books about this stuff were maybe a little more alarmist than where I ended up. And so I tried to ultimately come down in a place where I essentially said that what we should really take from the years of Trump is that why did it take a figure quite this demagogic and so openly hostile to to democratic rules and norms and values to focus everyone everyone's attention on these questions? 
Um, and what happens when that threat goes away? Do we all get complacent again? The, the ultimate thesis that I ended up uh, essentially trying to sketch out here was that we really need to learn from this and, and not take our eye off the ball again when this type of thing comes along. Um, you know, I think it's still hard to say where this all ends up, but I feel as if most indications are that we're going to get through it with 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 some damage, but not with the maximal damage that maybe many of us thought in the winter and spring of 2017, which was a very dark time. Um, but I really want to stress that going forward, we need to just improve our democracy wherever we can on the state level, on the federal level, take whatever opportunities we can to, to um, improve things and reform things. And by the way, I'd like to say that I think there's been a major awakening among the Democratic Party in particular on this topic. You'll note that the first thing the House Democrats did was introduce a major Democratic reform package. They, they put out Stacey Abrams, a, a very prominent voting rights uh, activist and advocate who was herself the victim of voter suppression to respond to a major Trump speech. I think there's a real realism setting in among Democrats in particular that for there to be progress uh, in the future, the, the absolute first thing that needs to be done is to win the war for democracy itself. So I think Trump um, has really awakened a lot of people to the, um, the fragility and the incremental ways in which democracy can backslide. And, and, and I think that in some ways has is, is really been a positive thing. And I wanted to ask you about this idea of democratic backsliding that you talk about at the beginning of the book, and it also seems to, to, to a degree, frame your investigation. What What is the term mean itself in terms of how you are using it um, and how political scientists think about it? And how do we position the United States within that context? Well, so democratic backsliding, as, as many in your profession know better than I do, um, can be uh, abrupt and, and dramatic, or it can be incremental. And the type of democratic backsliding that I write about in this book is the incremental type in which democratic values and um, norms and, and, and the health of democracy gets eroded subtly through things like the partisan capture of the rules. And so we've seen that for a long time predating Trump in the form of the voter suppression laws that really came, really started getting passed by many Republican legislatures after 2010 and in the form of gerrymandering and so forth. And, and just to return to what I tried to say before, I'll try to say it better this time. Um, you know, everyone looked at the sudden rise of Trump and saw an authoritarian menace, and that got everybody awakened about the health of our and fragility of our democracy. Yet a lot of these things that were eroding it and kind of gnawing away at it almost in a termite-like way long predated Trump. And it, 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 it's a bit of a shame that it took a figure as openly menacing as Trump to focus everyone on some of these broader questions. But I guess, you know, maybe that is what it took. And so this type of democratic backsliding, I think now 
we're all much more on our guard against it. I think that's why you see Democrats really suddenly trying to pass reforms on the state level in a, in a much more uh, in a much more stepped up way. Why you see people like Eric Holder out there talking about um, gerrymandering and, and the need to be on the lookout for that in the next uh, redistricting cycle and so forth. Um, you know, I think it's a positive thing what we saw in New Jersey just very recently. This is a bit of a not. I, I don't mean to to sort of go off in, in, on a tangent, but I think it's important. In in New Jersey, to, to to preface this, right? Democrats have had their own very long history of gerrymandering and and doing those types of shenanigans. Although they, although um, I think Republicans took it to a new level in in the decade of of the Obama years. <laughs> And, and, and so what Democrats ended up taking from that is that this is really an intolerable tactic. So in New Jersey, uh, you saw Democrats attempt to gerrymander and <clears throat> the weight of the progressive and Democratic establishment just came crushing down on those New Jersey Democrats, if you recall, and, and they managed to get it reversed. I don't know if that, something like that could have happened uh, previously. Um, I take that as a really positive development, one that really reflects a kind of eye-opening or enlightenment among Democratic activists and progressive activists and, and party officials to the effect that, you know, there are certain things we're just not going to do anymore. They're, they're, they're intolerable as political tactics. They constitute a manipulation of the political rules that, that is is disenfranchising and unacceptable. And, and those, that's a positive development. And I really hope that it, it uh, continues. So that would suggest that the sort of era of Thunderdome politics may be on the wane, perhaps? I don't know. I mean, I think one of the lessons from this cycle is that Republicans, at least, are every bit as devoted to it as ever. We saw voter suppression in full swing. We saw the president out there essentially warning that the, the outcomes of certain elections would be illegitimate if Republicans didn't win them. Um, and you, you heard barely a peep, if anything, from leading Republicans in response to that. Um, earlier in this cycle, we had Trump's sham voter suppression commission, which was essentially a, a massive use of federal resources to try to legitimize a, a, the, the, the lie that there's such a thing as widespread voter fraud um, and to create a, you know, a, a, to create cover and a rationale for more Republican voter suppression tactics. Uh, so re the Republican Party appears as devoted to this as ever. Um, on the legislative front, you saw all kinds of terrible shenanigans like the eff efforts to pass the repeal of Obamacare under dead of night um, and so forth. And so it, it's kind of an interesting situation with, with them on, on the Democratic side. You're seeing a recognition that these types of things are really no longer acceptable um, that they won't engage in these tactics. But of course, there's also um, some pressure on the left for them to, for Democrats to essentially wake up and fight a lot harder. So when Democrats end up taking control, you know, whenever this happens of the White House and Cong growth houses of Congress, you know, there will be tremendous pressure on them to maybe really amp up the hardball on their side. And so I don't know where that's going to end up. I, I hope that, that it doesn't lead Democrats to abandon their 
focus on on uh, on democratic reform and democracy. Um, but it's a little early to say where um, all this ends up in terms of what you're talking about, whether the whether the hardball is on the wane. I, I don't know how Democrats will manage that. And so I, in, in that context, you know, you're sort of talking about um, a form of asymmetrical politics also that other political scientists have been sort of analyzing that the two parties don't work as parallel mirrors to one another. Um, and what you're also talking about in the book is different different ways that um, one party or the other party has actually operated in terms of um sort of limits on voters. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you saw in your research in terms of um, voter fraud questions, voter suppression, which are different things? Um, and we have this, you know, hearing right now going on in North Carolina around some of these questions at, you know, in terms of the contested seat there. Well, the North Carolina thing is is really an amazing um uh, it, it's an amazing development because for for years and years Republicans have warned us of, of voter fraud. And I should I should say here that I I looked at a lot of the research on voter fraud and, and like many others concluded that it's really largely fictional. It doesn't really exist. Um, you know, by this I mean voter impersonation fraud, and that it's really just a rationale for Republicans to engage in in voter suppression tactics such as. Uh, strict voter ID laws and so forth. But now in North Carolina, you have actual election fraud. And of course, this, this, this is the reality of it. This is the, we, we now see where it, it actually does happen, and it has nothing to do with the type of voter impersonation fraud that Republicans have been warning about for years. So that really is kind of an ironic outcome. And and so what you found in your research was this question of voter suppression um, as a result of changing laws and structures. We had some of these changes in Wisconsin, where I live, um, around access, ballot access, getting getting voters to be able to vote. You have now more barriers potentially to that. How does that contribute to this sort of ongoing um, tussle around, you know, the so-called Thunderdome politics? Well, one thing that I found that really was striking to me is that there was a lot more documentary evidence out there than I ever suspected of the real motive behind these things. In, in the book, I, I talk about, I try to tell the story of of, of this documentary evidence, I, I recount the various times in which Republicans have either behind closed doors or even in public admitted that the whole point of some of these types of laws, like strict voter ID laws, for instance, was to suppress particular the votes of particular targeted pro-democratic constituencies. I, 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 had, I had never dreamed that it was that brazen. <laughs> it was just it's really just been admitted to out in the open again and again and again. And then, of course, the courts at times, such as in North Carolina, have have really struck down these these types of laws with a very forceful denunciation of of and, and a very effective fact finding effort proving these the, the racial motivations behind these types of things. In terms of the broader impact that it has. One thing that I think we may see going forward is that, again, just to, re- to go back to this, if and when Democrats do end up in control of everything, uh, 
the left will have a strong case to make the Democrats. They'll say, well, you know, you, you've been targeted by brutal, hardballed Republican hardball tactics for years. Are you really going to refrain from doing what it takes to push to push our agenda through? And my view of this is that Democrats and, and liberals and progressives should not be willing to engage in tactics that I guess fundamentally cross over into something that's undemocratic and illiberal. Um, so for instance, I, I don't think many liberals or progressives or democratic partisans would be comfortable with the idea of a democratic legislature suppressing the votes of uh, aging working class whites, um, assuming that could be done. That that wouldn't be something we do, and yet that's what they do. Um, and even though they do it, I don't think we'd be comfortable with a response like that. We'd say it's wrong. To, re to go back to extreme gerrymanders, as I said before, Democrats do have a long history of this, but after what happened in the last cycle in which it was taken to really insane extremes by Republicans, Democrats now view it as no longer tolerable. I, the challenge going forward is, is, is going to be to figure out a way to um, maximize the gain, possible gains from total democratic control without crossing over into what I think are fundamentally illiberal and undemocratic practices. And, and what I argue in the book is that this is going to have to be something, this balance will have to be struck in a case-by-case -case way and that it's a very hard thing to get right. But I do think we can get it right, and I hope we do. And, and so what would be some of the suggestions that you might consider in terms of moving forward to provide more equality or access within the democracy that it doesn't then disenfranchise particular groups? Um, or again, you know, you sort of talk about this in the book, the sort of counter-majoritarian um, sort of understanding of how, how democracy works. Well, I mean, I, I come out for pretty strongly for things like automatic voter registration, which and this is the type of thing that Republicans, at least some Republicans, will view as a hardball tactic from their side, because, frankly, it's probably true that if more people vote, it helps Democrats. But here's an, a perfect example of, of a tactic that's still fundamentally democratic and, in fact, is pro-democratic. If we make it easier for, for more people to vote, that's good for democracy. It makes it more representative, which is something my research showed, too. Um, and it should be something that Republicans are for, not against. One thing I argue in the book is that there's really no reason for Republicans to decide that more people voting is is. is is, be is necessarily bad for them. I mean, look at the 2016 election. The, the lesson that I think everybody drew from it, or at least many people did, is that uh, Trump was able to tap into constituencies that Republicans simply weren't able to access. Well, if that's the case, and, and I think we know that's true, he did do that, um, then why wouldn't something like automatic voter registration provide a way for Republicans to, to reach more voters, too? I, I, don't, I don't see why they automatically assume that more people voting is bad for them. So, you know, that's the type of thing I come out for. I, I talk about, um, I argue for nonpartisan redistricting commissions, which we actually saw pass in several states in the last cycle, which, which is 
you know, positive and also shows once again that Democrats are really trying to push forward with reforms on the state level uh, where possible. Um, so that type of thing, um, you know, there's going to be some arguing, uh, some big arguments around whether to do away with the legislative filibuster when, if and when Democrats control everything. I urge caution on that front. The, the, the overall framework I try to develop in this book is that Democrats need to go into the coming procedural wars with a balance in mind. On the one hand, they don't want to unilaterally disarm in the sense that they only let Republicans push and push their their agenda through the most hardball tactics imaginable. Um, so Democrats do have to be willing to escalate, uh, but I argue that they should do it with care and with an eye towards improving democracy overall. I, you know, I, I rely on a, 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 a framework that was developed by one of your colleagues, Julia Zari, um, who I think really has written well about this topic. And I found her, I found her way of treating it very helpful. She, she essentially has, has essentially framed this, this way. She said that, um, hardball tactics don't necessarily have to be off limits provided they're not really destructive to democratic relations and aren't really destructive to institutions. I'm oversimplifying, but that's the gist of what she's argued. And and I think that's a useful way to think about it. To me, something like automatic voter registration in which it's a lot easier for people to get registered or nonpartisan redistricting commissions, uh, which essentially give lots and lots of uh, stakeholders on all sides a feeling that they have that they have a stake in, in what's happening. Those things are, are a fundamentally disarming of Republican hardball tactics as opposed to being democratic hardball tactics, if that makes sense. In other words, these are things that are democracy enhancing and institution enhancing as opposed to democracy destroying and institution destroying. And and to some degree, what they do is level the playing field as opposed to necessarily coming after the opposition. Right. It's a, it's almost like an opportunistic or strategic disarming of Republican counter-majoritarian tactics, right? So if you make it a lot easier to vote, there, there are other ways to do this, right? And improve voting rights acts, for instance. And I think the package of reforms that Democrats introduced in the House has has a few things like this. But you try to essentially take off the table wherever possible the things that Republicans are doing to try to limit and, and, and constrict democracy. And you try and open it out. And as you say, level the playing field. It's an opportunistic thing. You do it in whatever state you can. Right. I mean, it, one kind of amusing thing was that when I got the book done, it was it, the the number of states that I had in it that had passed automatic voter registration was quickly like rendered obsolete because they're doing it so quickly in so many states. Um, I think it's up to over a dozen now, right? I think so. And we also had, as you say, a number of states that passed the sort of, you know, separate nonpartisan commissions to do redistricting after the census. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is going to be really, it's important just to return to the to the overall theme. Once Trump is gone, presuming that happens one day, 
there will be a sense that there might be a temptation to lapse into complacency that, okay, things have been resolved, things, you know, we got through this, everything's fine. But I think we can't let that happen. And and one way to avoid that is to just continue pressing for reform wherever possible, you know, wherever Democrats, and it's going to have to be Democrats, unfortunately, unless Republicans undergo some major changes, wherever Democrats uh, are able to, to take power, try and, and institute some of these reforms. And then on the federal level, I think you'll probably see the same thing if, if and when they take back everything. The, the package of Democratic reforms in the House is kind of a, I think, a harbinger of that. Um, and so we just have to keep incrementally improving wherever we can is really where I end up coming down. And so my final question in that context is, do you see that this kind of flashpoint of the election of Donald Trump and a number of the sort of pieces of work that have been done exploring the fragility of democracy, has this pushed forward towards more civic education, yeah, civic I, involvement? I mean, it, it's actually, it, it, to, th- this is really the note that the book opens on, which is that there's this odd kind of paradox here, right? Um, there's been just this tremendous explosion of attention to our democracy. Um, it's unfortunate that it required a figure quite this uh, hostile and, and openly contemptuous of democracy and democratic values to make that happen, but it did. And yes, I mean, I think there's been an extraordinary outpouring of civic engagement. Look at the 2018 election, for instance. I actually cite some field work by a couple sociologists um, who, 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 were, who really documented that the organizing that's been going on in communities across the country, particularly among middle-aged women, um, is rooted in a very profound sense that's, that that Trump's election revealed serious serious systemic issues with 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 the way we do our politics, and so the level of organizing that that resulted from this sudden awareness of this was pretty extraordinary, and I think really laid the groundwork for many of the Democratic gains in 2018. So really one big question is whether we can sustain this and kind of bottle this energy and and keep it going uh, as we go forward. And so um, are you working on another book or have you just gone back to your usual day job of writing regularly at the Washington Post? Uh, no book yet. Um, and <laughs> and I, 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 uh, after having been through this, I don't, I don't know when I'll, you know, want to do it again. Okay. Thank you, Greg Sargent, for joining me today on the New Books podcast to talk about uncivil war. Um, If there's a brick and mortar store you'd like to shout out that people can buy your book at, I'm sure it's available at all the usual sites, but please be my guest. Uh, Well, I'm sure you can get it anywhere, or at least I hope you can. (laughs) And And thank you for joining me this afternoon. Thank you so much.